Well, I guess I'll, we're we're recording, babe. So my boyfriend's also the producer. That's why I'm calling oh, him, babe. I, love, I was about to say, it's a little spicy up in here. Got a little affair going on, honey, but this is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to another episode of Black Frasier. I'm Phoebe Lynn Robinson, and as always, I'm joined in the studio by my co-producer, my editor, the love of my stinking life, British Bagel. Hello. Bit different studio, isn't it? It is. We're actually in California for the month as I'm trying to finish writing my book. Ooh, it's lovely out here, isn't it? Written in the desert. Mm-hmm. The sun is shining. Yeah, I mean, not today. But not today. Today is like the first day it's overcast, but yeah. it's That's, been lovely. Yeah, it's been nice to just have like my skin drying out every single night. <laughs> oh my God, I wake up every morning <laughs> just gasp, gasping for any kind of water. Yeah. Um, but it's it's nice change of pace to be on the West Coast, and then we're in the middle of lockdown until after Christmas. So. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> we could have stayed in New York. We're quarantining in a different part of the world <laughs> in different rooms. <laughs> <laughs> but if we knew then what we know now, God, isn't that the truth? You know, in, in life, yeah, I was just been like, okay, we can just quarantine, but we can go for a walk outside. Yeah, go walk around the yard. Yeah. Avoid all the creatures. You get so scared. We've got a little vole in the uh, garden. Which is basically a nasty-ass mouse. It's not. Have you Googled what a vole looks like? They look very cute. They're kind of like a, a a fat mouse that's got squished. <laughs> yeah, this is not cute. This is fucking gross is what it is. Wow. It is. Say, say that to the vole's face. Vol, come in here. You're fucking gross. Wow. Like that? I don't want that in my life. Like you. Anyway, so every, literally every night, I'm on the lookout for freaking voles scurrying <laughs> past our window. It's very scary. There's a fucking squirrel that looks like it's been fucking Fight Club for 20 it's years. It's seen some shit, that squirrel. It, the hair is jacked the fuck <laughs> up. It's in need of like a Jamaican braider to come in and fix the hair. So as you can tell, I'm not a big nature person. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you're so suited for Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Like the only nature you get there is rats. And like, (laughs) they're so like, I've only ever seen one rat in the whole of New York. Isn't that crazy? I see them like a lot. What's wrong with you? The size of this rat Mm -hmm. was like, it was like a cat. Yeah. It was wild i mean 
Aren't there GMOs in our food? Is that what it is? GMOs? Is that what it's called? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Growth, genetically modified organisms. There's GMOs in our food. I mean, that rat looked like it had been just eating whey protein for like (laughs) three weeks. (laughs) Bench pressing like 20 pounds. (laughs) Well, I will say, in Brooklyn's defense, um, <laughs> <laughs> you're like I, I have nothing <laughs> I cannot defend Brooklyn <laughs> Brooklyn's great you guys it is great and like yes is there a rodent problem sure so <laughs> <laughs> you guys you look, you look tired. I'm ready for this year to be over. I'm I think over everyone it. is. I want to skip your birthday. <gasps> I want to skip Christmas. My birthday's next week, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, sorry. Oh. You had your chance. I came so close. Yeah. <laughs> so let's bypass it. Do I get to stay 31? Yeah. Okay, I, guess, I mean, that's a, a consolation prize at least. Yeah, and then next year I'll do like a nice birthday for you. Like I'll let you yeah. like go bang some other person. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't sound like anything I want, to be honest. Why not? I think we're getting off topic here. No, we're staying on topic. (laughs) This bitch likes to pretend like you are the only beautiful person I've ever seen in my whole life. And it's a lie. It's not not. a lie. It's not a lie. There's no one else on this planet. That you think is attractive. I think I, you and I have discussed this before. And I think next week's episode goes into it a bit as well, where I only find people attractive that I have a relationship with. Boring. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's like really sweet. Wow. I <laughs> know that's really sweet and nice. Anyway, let's get on track. Okay. You guys, we took a little hiatus because it was turkey day. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of like, listen, guys. We had a good Thanksgiving, though, right? Yeah. Mai came over. Mm-hmm. We cooked. Mm-hmm. We laughed. Mm-hmm. We got sleepy. Got sleepy. We were all responsible and got tested. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I feel like Mai is probably the only person we've seen in quarantine. For like eight months. Yeah. Yeah. So... You know, I know a lot of people are like gathering and stuff. Like we mm-hmm. only allowed one other person to come over. Everyone had to be tested. Yeah. And they had to go back the fuck home. <laughs> and then do not pass go. Yeah. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Take your leftovers. I'll see you next year. <laughs> it was very uh my made mac and cheese for us. She which did was a lot of pressure, I feel, on her. Well, you know, Black people are very particular about their mac and cheese. I wasn't necessarily saying black people, but I was saying mac and cheese is like the highlight of Thanksgiving meal. Right. But when you're making it for like a black person, it's extra mm. pressure. I suppose, yeah. Yeah. But my came through. She did. That was a lot of cheese in that. It was really good. Mm-hmm. I farted a lot. <laughs> but it was very delightful. So three cheers and a woohoo for my. Hip hip hooray woohoo. yes okay you guys we gotta talk about the topic at hand okay Mm -hmm. and i just want to start by introducing this guest by saying that she is literally like 
so wise, so smart. And I think as we're winding out the year, we got past the election. Cheeto stain is out. Yes. Yeah, finally. Tide pods really helped with that one. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, we're trying to sort of get rid of all the ugliness that's there. And, like, we're thinking about the future, who's going to represent us, who is going to sort of be this inspiration that we could then use in our own lives to step up and do better. And so I just thought it was fitting to have a conversation with someone who I feel like is the future. Mm -hmm. Um, She's very smart. She is just like has most lovely personality. I think she was also recently on this year's Forbes 30 under 30 list, which is really cool. And I know that like, I want to preface this by saying, because I know sometimes people feel like, well, if I don't make a list, that means that I'm not worthy. Does not mean that. No. Okay. So she's, uh, she did her damn thing and she got on this list and that's amazing. But if you didn't get on a list this year, you are also equally amazing. Just want to preface that. No one needs to feel bad about themselves about anything. 2020, we're trying to get through it. Okay. So she's on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. She is an activist. She is, um, she recently got hired, I want to say it's a few months ago, to work um, as a communications director for Miss Foundation. Ooh. So I just feel like she's so smart, so wonderful. She has so many just incredible things to say. And I really do feel like she's just represents the best and the brightest of the future. And I'm really excited that we got a chance to sit down with Raquel Willis, um, who was just so delightful. Um, And we just had an amazing conversation just sort of talking about, you know, not only trans issues, but just all the issues that we are, that are in our heads all the time, whether it's about, you know, how to step up in society, how to be a better citizen, Mm -hmm. um, just sort of kind of feeling like, we're more in control of changing our destiny than we feel like we are. And that if we work together as a unit, we can do that and make the world a better place. So I really do feel like this is a great episode to come out of Turkey Day slumber (laughs) with. Feel really cute about. And so I want to say without further ado, here's my interview with Miss Raquel Willis, please. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Raquel. Hi, Raquel. Hi. It's great <laughs> to be on. Yeah, this is, I feel like this podcast has been like so helpful for me to like feel uplifted during quarantine and the election and everything. And I think the people listening as well feel like they're learning so much and they're feeling really connected with everyone that I'm talking to. So I had to have you in the mix. Um, I just think you, you're 29, I believe. No, 28, 29. Wow. We're going there already. No, but you're so young and you've (laughs) accomplished so much. And like, you know, when I was interviewing, not trying to name drop, but when I interviewed Michelle Obama, like she's talking about young people like you who are like out there on the front lines, like doing things that are really going to change the world for the better. So that's why I bring up your age. It's like, you are so impressive. And so amazing. So I thought the best way to start off this conversation is to sort of like, if we could get a little bit of your origin story of how you became who you are, this like dynamite person who is inspiring others and you're showing up and you're doing the work every day and that's making the world a better place. 
Yeah, my origin story. Uh, I feel like, you know, like anyone else, there are mm -hmm. so many twists and turns. Uh, so I grew up in Augusta, Georgia. I consider myself a Georgia peach and the big apple these days because <laughs> I live in Brooklyn now. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up in a pretty traditional household, you know, mom, dad, older sister, older brother. They were both about a decade older than me. Yeah. Give, give it, take some change. So I'm used to being around older folks. So it's so funny when folks, you know, say I'm young or I'm still youthful because I'm like, really? I, I feel like I've been here a long time. I feel like I've lived many lives. Even talking to my mom, she's like, yeah, you're, yeah, you're kind of an older soul. So, um, yeah, you know, but I, I grew up in a Catholic household, um, very traditionally black, traditionally Southern. Um, so I was, coming into my queerness and transness without having any language for it, as mm -hmm. is the case for most people. So it was a very um, interesting experience. I felt like I had all of these extra layers of restrictions on me. Um, and eventually I came out as gay because that was just the only language I had. You know, it was like, yeah. that was what I was being called on the playground. They'd be like... Any um, slur about femininity you can think of, I probably heard it. Um, or they'd just be like, oh, you're just like a girl. You're like yeah. a girl. And like secretly, I was like, mm, yes. But like outside, <laughs> I was like, uh, no, you know, because didn't want to be implicated in that way. When I got to the University of Georgia, that was where I met really like a community of queer and trans folks for the first time. Didn't meet other trans women, really. Didn't really meet trans feminine folks, but I met a lot of trans men. And I kind of found language through that. I found language through being a part of our LGBTQ activist student groups on campus found language in gender studies, which then we called women's studies because mm -hmm. people weren't really, you know, on top of uh, breaking down the binary yeah. um, at that time. And so, so yeah, so I mean, that was where I really got um, all of my like pride and power in being trans, but there was still not as much of an integration, I think, around what blackness at the intersection of transness and at the intersection of womanhood meant. And so that really came after I left college. Um, I went back into the closet a little bit because I was working at a conservative newspaper and I received like hate mail every now and then people telling me, oh, you're such a naive young girl, all these liberal ideals and all mm. these different things. I even got a warning letter saying the Ku Klux Klan is alive and well in this area. You better watch your back, essentially. Uh, so all of that was, like, obviously scary. It was also the rise of the Tea Party, the kind of mm -hmm. proto-Trump era. Um, so I was like, I got to get the hell up out of here. <laughs> so <laughs> I moved to Atlanta, and then that was where I found Black, queer, and trans community. And that's where I really... Um, wanted to figure out how to put as much of my energy as possible into social justice. Mm. So the movement for Black Lives was popping off. I was meeting other Black trans women who um, were trying to alleviate the harms of the criminal injustice system. Um, and, and people were profiling sex workers. The Atlanta Police Department yeah. was profiling sex workers. So 
that was the kind of work that um, kind of brought me really into what later became activism, you know? Um, And I think like most folks, you know, you don't, most people don't set out unless, you know, it's it's just like a brand thing for them, you know, to be an activist. I think it just kind of happens to you as you learn, listen, and observe. Yeah. Okay. So there are so many things in that just breakdown that I want to touch on. The first thing is, um, you mentioned the intersection of blackness and transness, and I I'm curious as to how you feel that journey has been thus far. Um, I feel like anytime there's blackness in any sort of space, there's a lot of resistance. Um, there's a a lack of acceptance, and so I'm wondering like how the progress has been in terms of that intersection. Good question. How has it been? I mean, it's been complicated, complex, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I I don't think that it does justice to my journey to say that it's all been difficult because that's not entirely true. Um, And I wouldn't be the person I am today without all of those struggles, I think. Um, I think when you're any kind of marginalized, like you have any sliver of marginalization, it can be difficult to understand that you could be complicit in somebody else's oppression. Mm-hmm. And I have witnessed that in all black spaces, particularly from black cisgender straight men who were not, uh, receptive to understanding my experience as a black woman or my experience as a black queer person or my experience as a black trans person. Um, Similarly, I've been in feminist spaces where, you know, folks don't want to consider what it means to be trans um, and how that is a different experience and how there is a privilege to, um, being assigned a gender at birth and identifying with that throughout, right? And that doesn't mean that it's not still a struggle yeah. because I believe and I know that gender and these restrictive notions that we have around it impacts all of us in negative, devastating ways. Mm-hmm. Um, literally, one of the wildfires in California was started because of a gender reveal party. Yep. Like we have you to know? end those. No more of those. Honestly, it's <laughs> so ignorant in this day and age, not even just wildfire, but just like putting that pressure on another person who's coming into this world to say like, this is who you're going to be for the rest of your life. Like we just have to stop doing it. Makes yeah. sense. You know? And it's like, can we not just celebrate the birth? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. celebrate that there's a new person in our midst, you know, that's going to go on this journey and give them enough space to actually fully express themselves and enjoy their journey. Yeah. And the funny thing is that it's not just trans and queer and gender nonconforming folks who don't fit into these perfect little boxes of femininity and masculinity. It's also people who are straight and cis. Mm-hmm. All imagine over the course of your life, all of the men and boys and masculine folks that you've you've encountered that could not cry, mm-hmm. could not even express sadness, could not express and experience intimacy, could not mm-hmm. move through the world or fathom moving through the world 
without a sense of needing to control and dominate other people, other conversations, other experiences. When I think of women, girls, feminine folks who are told they can be strong, capable, brilliant, intelligent leaders, and that they can't call the shots on things and that they aren't oftentimes the best leaders. Mm -hmm. I think about how the gender binary impacts all of us. And for all the people who are gender expansive, who are gender nonconforming, even though I believe everyone is, right? But those of us who are brave enough to claim those labels and titles and descriptors, we're impacted by all of that. So it's not just the gender experience that I'm having. We're all having this topsy-turvy gender experience together. Yeah. And so one of the things that I really just admire about you is your work in the organizing space, in the community space, because I think, especially now, so many people are want to be involved in that. They want to, they understand that like, oh yeah, I can't just, you know, voice my disdain about what's going on. I have to actually be an active participant. And you've been doing this work for so long. So can you take me back to when you were like a baby organizer and like sort of like how you were feeling about entering the social justice space and maybe some of the mistakes you made and some of the really amazing surprises that happened when you started out? Yeah, well, you know, I think a part of my childhood that in many ways impacted my understanding of social justice and privilege and all of these different things and being of service to other people was... uh Actually, some of the ideals I learned in Catholicism around stewardship, around um, figuring out your part to support and make other people's lives better. But of course, there was also working with the Red Cross Youth Board. We volunteered all the time. We One of the important moments I remember was volunteering to raise money after Hurricane Katrina happened for folks who were a few states over. Um, but I would say I got my organizing chops um, in Atlanta. Uh, And one of the interesting things about that experience was that I was meeting other Black trans women really in in a lot of ways for the first time. Mm -hmm. Because I was in a university context for a long time. And we know the barriers, the systemic barriers being any kind of marginalized there. So I never saw myself in academia. Um, And we were out on what is quote unquote called the stroll. Yeah. Yeah. And um <laughs> my friend, dear friend Tony Michelle Williams mm-hmm. and I were out surveying um the experiences of other black trans women who were sex workers. And I just had this moment where I broke down in her car mm-hmm. and I was like, we've got to do something. They shouldn't mm-hmm. be out here. We gotta figure out what we gotta do. And she was like, you're nobody's savior, honey. Like, Mm -hmm. you do your part, you figure out what you can do, but you're nobody's savior. And that was such an opening for me to understand my own privilege, even as a Black trans woman, that I was wielding this middle-class privilege I grew up in, um, this academic privilege that I had to even go to college and graduate with a degree, to have consistent employment, to think that I had the solutions for people with experiences that were not actually exactly like my own. And it actually is about figuring out how to collaborate and support people in, in building up the solutions that they already have. 
I think your your buzzer. Yeah. Bill Everett. Yeah, 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 go, go, go. Yeah, give me one second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so what you just said, I want to follow up on because I thought it was so powerful, um, where you were told that you don't have to be anyone's savior. Cause I think that is something, especially when society is in the way that it is now where there's so much strife, there's so much sort of like just anger and you see how much the system is broken in so many ways. People, it's natural to feel like, well, I have to come in and like save things and fix things. And like, it's really going to be all on my shoulders. And to me, I think that might be how a lot of people sort of understand social justice work as like this heavy burden. And so maybe I would love to hear about how you were, you're able to do the work that you do, but you're also able to not let it overwhelm you or break you down because it has to be so draining even though it's so rewarding because there's so much work that needs to be done. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that that part is its own kind of ongoing struggle Mm -hmm. because I'm human like anyone else, you know, even with years of experience and this work, I, have my moments where I'm like, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. Mm -hmm. People are still dying. Like people are still um, experiencing violence and discrimination. And I think actually a lot of my uh, peers and good Judy's feel the same way. Um, But, you know, I I think as I get older and mature a bit, um, I'm realizing that, grace is so important grace for ourselves um I used to feel so guilty if I needed to take time off or Mm. if I just wanted to allow myself to just get sucked into a tv show and like you know like I just literally could not sit still and I've gotten so much better about that these days you know, the wellness piece is so important to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's been reprioritized in a way, particularly with the quarantine mm-hmm. um, era. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's about understanding that organizing is a creative endeavor. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, I mean, you know, we have all of these ideas of what activism is supposed to look like or organizing is supposed to look like or what doing our part mm-hmm. is supposed to look like. And the truth is, is that doing our part is just as unique as it sounds. So yeah. what are the ways that you can organize within your own passion? If you are into athletics and sports, why can't you take cues from the WNBA about how they are making sure that people know about women who are experiencing violence or who have been victims of violence. Uh, If you're a teacher, how are you going to make sure that your curriculum actually is expansive and inclusive of various cultures and experiences that have not previously been included in particularly the American education system? You know, even if you're a student, you know, what does it mean to not just look at being a part of a student council or something like that as something for your college resume, Mm -hmm. 
But what if you are the one who's like, okay, we got to do something about climate change. What can I do? Oh, let's stop using plastic straws. You know, let's save the turtles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's it's really that creative. Mm-hmm. And we have got to get people to understand that you're going to do your best work and put your best um effort forward when you do it within something that you're already passionate about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes the most sense because then you don't have to you don't have to fake it. You don't have to sort of brush up on the knowledge like it's within you and that's mm-hmm. going to like just shine out and people are going to latch on to that for sure. So I want to talk about your newest job role over at Miss Foundation. You're the director of communications, which yay, congratulations. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> and how has that been going? You've been there for two months? Not even, right? It has been, it's been almost three, but almost, yeah, it's yeah, about two and a half. Yeah. yeah. Woo. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been good. It's been eye opening for sure. I've never worked in philanthropy before. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something about this opportunity for me that was really about understanding how our movements are resourced um, and supporting and making sure that we're resourcing um, those who are on the margins. And so Miss Foundation was the perfect place because there has been a concerted effort, particularly over the last few years, to center uh, Black women and girls and women and girls of color. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like the right time. I mean, they had just released uh, the Activist Collaboration Fund, which is funding so many different organizations from, you know, the fight for trans liberation to indigenous sovereignty, all of these different things. So I was like, okay, yeah, this is this is right. And I think that there's such an opportunity for us to have a renewed conversation on what it means to be a feminist today Mm. I think that we have had a lapse really you know it's kind of after like the era of you know like the showgirls and like all of these like you know white millennial women who had their voices heard and were made were positioned Mm -hmm. as if they had more substance than maybe they actually did Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um we missed out. And I think now a lot of it is uncovering, well, who are those black and brown women that you were never listening to, right? Who's been saying this stuff for generations? Mm -hmm. Who are those queer and trans women? You know, those non-binary folks who are pushing the envelope around what we even think in terms of identity. Um, And so I'm I'm eager to have those kind of conversations Mm -hmm. And I think this is a perfect time. Yeah. And so where do you, where would you like the feminist movement to sort of, to sort of focus on next and sort of rethink the way that they're operating? Because I know that, you know, like you were saying, like so many women of color and black women in particular, their voices are silenced. We're, when we say we want a focus on a particular thing, it might be labeled as identity politics or sort of taking away from what the focus of feminism is instead of being like, no, well, our concerns are feminist concerns. And so I'm curious as to what you're thinking 
being on the inside where you're like, you know what, the, the, the next five years, this is what I want us all to really be focusing on and really getting behind. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to get to a point where we have an actually expansive conversation about gender. Mm -hmm. Just because you're a woman, that does not tell me what your values are. That does not tell me who you believe has a genuine worth because we know not everyone who calls themselves a feminist actually lives with the value that everyone deserves to be respected with honor and dignity. For instance, J.K. Rowling, right? So one place we can start, I think, is reckoning with the history of Mm -hmm. the fight for gender justice and the fact that many of those initial feminists that we have lionized over the years were white supremacists as hell. Mm -hmm. Susan B. Anthony, white supremacist. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, white supremacist, right? Um, And while that's documented, I mean, the truth is is that white supremacy has trickled down through the generations, right? Because there hasn't actually been a reckoning writ large around the white supremacy within the feminist movement. Same thing, you know, I think about the classism, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think about the ways that poor women, low-income women, working-class women have been so sidelined within feminism for a long time, particularly if you're also of color. Mm -hmm. And so what are the ways that we're going to have that conversation, right? Yeah, it's great. You know, the second wave women were like, oh, we got to get out of the the kitchen and stop being housewives. And it's like, well, what about all the women who were already working, darling? Mm-hmm. What a disservice it, it it is to act as if work has inherently been valued across the board. And it hasn't. Um, so I that's what I want to have conversations on, you know? I also want to have conversations on the fact that Black women and women of color and queer women and trans women have contributed the most revolutionary, radical conceptions of gender justice in history. Mm. And we're coming for what is ours, right? For that recognition, Mm -hmm. that reclamation of our power. And also that reckoning that needs to happen for other people who have not understood that for so long. Yeah. I mean, you know, listening to you talk, I I agree that class is such an issue. And it's interesting. You see that also with racism as well. People don't want to understand that they work in tandem to keep the oppression going. And I'm wondering within the feminist movement, why are some feminists so hesitant to acknowledge the class issue? And 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 not acknowledging it is also what is prohibiting us from really moving forward as much as we possibly can. What do you think that it's all about? Well, I don't think that it's just um, the feminist movement. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. we have all been intoxicated by <laughs> this fantasy of what um, capitalism can provide, and. It's a problem, you know, yeah. and and so when I think about power, right, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. our conception of power in the society is about how much capital you can accrue. Let's just be real about it. Mm -hmm. And that capital is going to be accrued at the expense of somebody else, some other group. And so there's an inherent problem here with devaluing the lives and livelihoods of other people just so you can get yours. Yeah. And that is not something that has been grappled with mm-hmm. in the feminist spaces. But I also think about even our conversations around Black capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. And how we glorify this idea of if we can just get rich, we'll have everything we need. Mm-hmm. These rich people are not happy. They are mm-hmm. in their own kind of quiet crises because we have not detached power from materialism yeah, and really dealt with what it means to actually be empowered in your being. And so when when I think about those conversations, I'm so concerned because I'm like, will queer and trans people ever be able to, particularly Black queer and trans people, ever be able to gain footing in a society where essentially that's the rubric, right? Is that you have to have a certain amount of capital to be considered worthy, really, of living. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it it is like one of those things where... You know, I think we all see it because we're all on social media. You you follow certain people who are, you know, they're wealthy and they're showing off their the things that they have and their lives seem so amazing. And I think a lot of people sort of internalize like what you're saying, that having capital equals being worthy as a person. And so it's really hard to sort of undo that toxic sort of mentalities to realize these are the things that actually matter. And like having all this money, if you're not using it to benefit people, then what is it all for? I I think it's so hard for people to kind of get to that place to understand that having money just isn't going to make you magically a happy person. Isn't going to make you magically better than anyone else. Like you shouldn't be thinking of, of yourself as being better than someone else. And so I'm wondering like how movements can sort of operate when we're stuck in such a capitalistic society like how can we affect the change that's required so people can truly be free and happy when so much of society is built on power is built on acquiring wealth like what do you think is he a way we can move through that you know i don't know you know i'm not i'm not sure that we have the solutions yet around that because the thing is, is that even if you're an anti-capitalist, you know, we're we're caught up in the throes of the, this system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that, um, I think we need to continue to have more conversations about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we also have to know what we're up against. Um, who is funding what, how are they funding things? Um, and how are we going to make sure that those who are most in need are actually taken care of? You know, I, that's one of the issues I have with particularly how this election cycle has gone, right? Mm-hmm. Is that we 
the conversation has, um, and for a long time, it's been about just getting Trump out of office for a lot mm-hmm. of people. And it's like, oh, well, we'll get to that later. We'll get to these other things later. But first, we got to get him out of office. But, you know, that is the argument all the time. And mm-hmm. yes, that is important. But how do we hold getting him out of office and actually putting our best effort forward to move our society in a in a better direction? How are we going to make sure that folks actually have health care if we can get this dude out of the White House, right? Yeah. How are we going to make sure that we at least start working towards mm-hmm. better climate solutions, right? Um, how are we going to make sure that people are accessing holistic education, transformative education? Yeah. Um, those problems existed before the pandemic. You know, they existed mm-hmm. before Trump was in office mm-hmm. and we can't um, allow ourselves to be distracted from that fact. And we can't be wooed by this idea that returning to normalcy, quote unquote, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or the status quo, quote, quote, unquote, is OK, because the status quo and normalcy is white supremacy. The status quo and normalcy is having a certain amount of wealth to actually live the life that you deserve. Yeah. And so I want to turn back to your activism for a second, because I think what you've been able to do is provide this platform where you're not only calling out the things that are clearly wrong with society, but it goes beyond that. Like you're actually like trying to find solutions. You're actually really striving to help uplift other people and so i'm curious as to now you're in this position at the miss foundation we're in 2020 which is a dumpster fire but you're you're doing such wonderful work and i'm curious as to because of what's going on in the world do you feel like there's an extra sense of urgency within the way that you move um or Like, how are you feeling now in 2020? How is it maybe changing your activism to get to level five if it's at a level four right now? Um, I don't know that I think about it that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, throughout my journey, I've been open to and receptive to opportunities for growth for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think that because my understanding of social justice, um, and activism and organizing, um, is, I don't, rooted, I guess, in, in authenticity and vulnerability, um, I think part of allowing myself grace is understanding that I might, there, there might not be like a path, right? Like a set Mm -hmm. path, right? I think we're, we're creating the path as we go. So I don't, I really don't know what a next stage looks like. And I haven't, things have just happened and I've had to be ready to receive them, um, receive those opportunities. I know that's not like a cute yeah. answer, yeah. but 
I, I don't know if I look at activism in levels that way, because mm-hmm. I think that we're always learning and growing and, and trying to figure out more. Yeah. Um, there's so much more I want to know about um, various systems of oppression. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm all, also always growing in what I know and understand. I need to know more about ableism, right, mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. to be less caught up in um, furthering the marginalization of our disabled family, right? I need to know more about Mm -hmm. classism and learn about other people's experiences and how we can best all really support each other in that Mm -hmm. discussion, right? Because I think that that's such a quagmire in our society, need to know more about fat phobia, you know, all, all of these different things. And of course, other experiences globally, yeah. you know, I want to know more about what is happening to our people across the world. Cause we, we've got this larger story that I think we're chipping away at, but we're, yeah. we're not ever going to get to the end of piecing the story together. So let's just, let's embrace that. Yeah. So you said you have so much more that you want to learn so what, I guess my next question would be like, what has been the biggest lesson that you've learned thus far in your career? And what mm-hmm. has been the biggest lesson that you feel like you've taught others thus far in your career? Wow. Biggest lesson I've learned in my career. <laughs> Jeez. I would say, I think the biggest piece is Probably that we all have the capacity to both be oppressed and be an oppressor. Because mm. I, I think mm-hmm. understanding that gives you a certain sense of curiosity about other people's experiences and a certain responsibility to make sure that you are opening more doors than you're closing mm-hmm. in terms of access. So that will probably be it. And then the biggest one that I have shared or taught people, I don't know. That's so weird to, <laughs> to think about. Um, I think, and I, I still this word from time to time from uh, from a friend and someone I admire a lot, Tourmaline, a Black triads uh, filmmaker and artist. Um, there's power in being disrespectable um and i i don't i don't know that i i hold that individually right like i I, but when i think about respectability right this idea that you have to be a certain way to move through society um and get the things that you deserve i think the idea of disrespectable respectability which i believe she coined is all about the opposite right it's like how can we own the messiness of being human mm-hmm. own the complexity of being human own that you're not always going to have the right thing to say or fit somebody else's standards but that you still deserve to be here and that you're powerful um and so like i said like i don't think that i necessarily hold that on my own but i hope that my work can speak to that and i hope um that my work is, you know, in conversation with many of my peers who are also mm-hmm. pushing that. Cause I, 
I don't want any door that I may have opened to be closed for the next person. And I don't want the next person to have to check off as many boxes as I did. That's tired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want you, I want you to be maybe a little less tired than I am, you know, (laughs) like I don't want the next, next black trans woman or whoever, or trans person or whoever to go into a room that I've been in and feel like they have to be, have to speak a certain way, have to have a certain Mm -hmm. amount of education, have to have a certain resume or look a certain way. I don't want that. Yeah, that's I. That, I like hearing that because sometimes when people get in a certain in a certain position, they want to be like, "Well, I had to work this hard, so the people behind me also have to work as hard as I did." And it's like that's not the point. What? It's not that we all have to suffer the same amount. Like you want the suffering to go down a little bit. So just you even saying that, I'm just like, "Oh, your spirit is so so good, so pure," and I love it. Um, do we have a few audience questions? And this is my favorite Uh-oh. segment of the show. No, this is good. This is really, really good. You're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna like these questions. <laughs> um, uh, this one I really like. Um, is from Beth in Albany, New York, and she writes, "What is something you wish someone told you when you first started in the community organizing space?" something someone first told me like what you wish someone like told you about Mm. when you first started getting into community organizing oh this might be (laughs) what is yes 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 i you know yeah i mean there are a lot of things but i i wish someone had told me that even folks who look like you or who have similar experiences to you can harm you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like not everybody's your friend. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And, and there's such an, such a dynamic of competition Mm and scarcity yeah um across the board right I, I think period you know this is why we have these arguments that pop off on twitter all the time between black trans women and black cis women right mm-hmm. or between black women in general and black men right yeah. or or between even black trans women you know and other black trans women with, within ourselves so yeah And I I think that that also speaks to how basic our conversational representation is. Mm. Um, Representation, I've been saying lately, representation without accountability is dangerous. And at some point, it can't just be about identity, about somebody looking like us. It's also got to be about someone who shares the values that we Mm. also have. Yeah. So it's got to be, we got to couple that together. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you do in those moments when you were confronted with someone or something sort of that was so competitive, that was so ego driven? How did you not allow that to get you off track or get you off the path that you're trying to go on and do something positive? Yeah, I think part of it was just trying to have an understanding as much as possible of of their social location, right? I, I think 
Yeah, you know, when I've been treated unfairly, particularly in a work environment or in a movement environment, it's been about understanding why that person feels that way, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that doesn't mean that we're going to get to a point where it's all like hunky-dory and we can be good Judy's or whatever. A lot of times that's not the case. Yeah. But understanding that helps you understand which pieces you're actually in control of, which pieces you're actually holding, and the pieces that are out of your control. Mm. And that is so important with any conflict. Um. So, yeah, and, and, you know, people, I think, are very disarmed when you call shit for what it is. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. like, oh, you're another woman of color in this space and you're used to being the only one. So you, you, you're trying to figure out what it means to also have me here mm. or, oh, you need a certain amount of validation and credit for the work that you're doing that you assume you created in a vacuum when the truth is is that honey what you was doing was not really that original right of course somebody (laughs) else was gonna do something um similar or better right Mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean that anyone is biting off of you or that doesn't mean that anyone is coming for you yeah um it actually could be an opportunity for collaboration if you open yourself up to that right so I, I think that um that is key. And then the yeah. other piece is some people just toxic as hell. Yeah. <laughs> and I I often I almost always give people more than one chance mm-hmm. to display their true character. And if I see you've been similarly toxic in multiple instances and particularly with other people right because I'm also the type of person that's like okay well maybe we just don't vibe but like if you cool with other people maybe there isn't this character flaw but if you're also having the same toxicity issues in other relationships there's a lot more that you're holding that is actually out of my control so yeah we done it's all yeah yeah (laughs) That's great. Oh, God, you're so fucking awesome. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the next question. Um, this is from Dina in Arizona. Um, Dina writes, Raquel, given the state of the world, I want to be more outspoken, but I don't know where to begin. I see how people get attacked online for speaking out, and it makes me scared. How can I have the courage to stand up and speak my truth? Yeah. There, there is a volatility online. Um, I think it's a separate conversation from the cancel culture one because I, I don't entertain that conversation. Yeah, but there is, there is like a, a volatility sometimes around speaking up. Um, whether it's a good thing, a positive thing, or a negative thing. Um. And I actually am much more guarded online than I was a few years ago mm. because of some of that. Um, and and I, I do think that people don't quite understand that if you wouldn't say it 
in person, you probably should not be saying it online. Mm-hmm. Especially if your account or whatever is public. Yeah. Because this is literally a stage. Mm-hmm. And I think people still, a lot of people still have this idea that the internet is less serious than the real world. But no, honey, the internet is the real world. How you think this dude got in the White House? Yeah. Largely because of the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it, it is important for us to be very critical and considerate about what we're saying online. Um, and I, I think part of it is um, most things that I, I talk about online, I mean, I've had one-on-one conversations with the people around me about or other people about, right? And so I think that in-person space is where you can maybe incubate ideas more. I don't mm-hmm. see the internet as the place that you're going to safely be able to just incubate ideas that you've never talked about before. And I know I might, you know, I know other people probably feel a different way about it, but I just, I don't, I think there's so much more room for error, error, um, doing that. So I know that I give that all of that as like a a bit of a disclaimer, a a very long disclaimer, but, um, yeah, I think that you you just speak from your personal experience. You know, I think a lot of times people get tripped up by trying to speak about things that they don't have the range for mm. and making generalized statements. Mm-hmm. Um, so speak from your personal experience. How are you going to figure out how to use your platforms to tell your own story? And then I think as you do that, then you figure out the ways to connect your story more to other folks, you know, into this larger context, right? Speak about things that are, are speaking to you. What is there a news article that you're like, oh, you know, that's the perfect opportunity for you to be like, okay, well, this is what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, being very considerate <laughs> about, in particular, about the words that you use. Yeah. I just feel like people are so because I feel like I definitely this year have been on social media less because I just feel like people are so ready to just fight and they want to find a way to like pop off at someone. And I just mm-hmm. always feel like it's so counterproductive and I, I don't want to I hate being down on social media because I do think it does also do a lot of positive things as well. But I think it's just I don't know. There's just such a level of just hostility in it that just I don't know. It, it's scary to me. You know, it is scary. I mean, especially during election year. Mm -hmm. But you know what really shifted, honestly, was the 2016 election. I think in a lot of ways shifted my relationship with social media because that was during a time where, you know, I I feel like people. I don't have the science behind this, (laughs) but it felt like more people were being doxxed than ever before around 2015, 2016. Mm -hmm. It felt difficult because that was when we started to see the bots, but we didn't mm-hmm. quite know that they yeah. were bots for a long time. And, and so anytime you say anything about 
the election, you get a bunch of these like right wing hater folks. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, those were bots the whole time. <laughs> you know, yeah. so like we've even, I think, particularly on the left and, and particularly for black women, because black women were getting a lot of that as well. Mm-hmm. We were getting a lot of the ire. And nobody was listening to us. And then it was like, oh, this actually is a dynamic here. Yeah. So. Um, And then we have our last audience question. This is from Anonymous. Okay. Uh, Anonymous writes, hey, Raquel, for years, I've been thinking about getting into the nonprofit space slash being more involved in my community. But it never seems like the right time, whether it's debt, family issues, or just the hectic nature of life. I can never seem to make that leap. And then I feel guilty and the cycle continues. When did you know it was the right time for you to show up? And were you ever worried about money while you were doing all the organizing work that you do? I, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, even though I came from a middle-class background, of course, you know, I think with that, there was always a an expectation that, you know, once you graduated, you're on your own, honey. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but I, I did have some support from my mom, of course. Um, by that point, my dad had passed. So, you know, it was literally just her and she was on the verge of retiring. Mm -hmm. So it was important for me to figure out how to sustain myself. Um, so yeah, I mean, money was an issue, you know, nonprofit jobs typically do pay less than other industries, corporate spaces. Um, I will say, though, I think typically, though, benefits-wise, there's more consideration there and more consideration around wellness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the the actual turning point for me where I was like, I've got to put as much energy into these movements, particularly... Um, on behalf of Black, queer, and trans people was after after another Black man was killed by police. This is back in 2014. No, sorry, it was 2015. I went to work, mostly surrounded by a bunch of white people. You know, I think there was one other Black woman on staff um, at that point. Uh, and we had just hired another one. So, th- so there were three of us. Um, but I remember going to work and it was just business as usual. Yeah. And I'm like, my eyes are like puffy. I'm so, I'm not talking to anybody. I'm just, and I'm following the Twitter timeline, like on my phone in between doing my work and I'm in mourning. Yeah. And I'm working somewhere that doesn't even know that any of this has happened, you know, because these mm-hmm. corporations weren't posting black squares even mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. then, you know, <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I got to get out of the space. This is not where my energy should be, mm-hmm. you know, like my energy needs to be going to the people. And so the thing about it was. I I knew the the best decision for me was going to be using whatever skills I already had in this space. It wasn't going to be I'm going to go out and be an organizer, even though I had been doing some organizing. I that I just didn't feel like I um 
couldn't body that yet. Yeah. Didn't even really know what that option looked like. So I did. I took a comms role at Transgender Law Center, and that's that was my segue into nonprofits. I was still using my journalism background. Um, digital, the digital space was always important to me. And so that was how I made the, the leap. Um, and I moved across country for that to Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was great. So, I mean, I, I think it's about not being shy about the fact that like you do have to survive. I think a lot of times people want to do social justice work um, and we don't want to have a real conversation about us needing to survive, right? There is a certain salary that you probably need to make to have the livelihood that you deserve and yeah. or at least as close to the one that, that you deserve as possible. And we got to be real about that. The other thing I will say, though, is one thing I, I have learned in nonprofits is that, you know, we have this idea that that these spaces are like utopias mm. and everybody gets that you know there's there's no no toxic dynamics that's not true yeah <laughs> there's still white supremacy mm-hmm. there's still black people black trans people people of color who are passed up for promotions and opportunities all the time yeah. For white people, just because they've had access throughout their careers to have leadership roles and positions, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I've worked alongside trans men who were paid more than me for the same job, you know, and like a lot more, considerable amount more, yeah. Yeah. you know, so it's not all a utopia, right? So, so coming in with realistic expectations is key, and I did not do that. Mm. Well, I bought into the idea that we we're family. Yeah, <laughs> we're all in this together. And then you find out, oh no, this person's in it for themselves, and that is it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just want to applaud you. I think what you're doing is so special and so necessary. And you use the word grace several times. I think you do it with grace. I think you do it with intelligence, and I think you do it with compassion and empathy. And that is and short supply these days. Mm -hmm. And so I just really appreciate you sharing your gifts with the world. It's been great. Thank you. I appreciate you as well. (laughs) You do so many dope things and, and you have paved so many ways for people too. So really? Oh, thanks. Yes. (laughs) Girl, come on. Why we do this? Okay, you guys. Well, it's another great conversation. She is so inspiring to like listen to, and makes me want to do better and tr- do more. Yeah, well. you should do way more because you're white. Wow, you're a straight white male. Yeah, we are the worst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, how are you going to fix things? Go. Um, I'm going to make sure that people of color and the trans community have a stage for their voices and make sure I'm a good ally. Yes. Are you going to start giving people money and stuff too? I mean... Like reparations? Like you <laughs> pay some out? I'll set up like lemonade stands, but for <laughs> reparations and just like... Thank you. So we could just walk up and I'm yeah, exactly. like... Yeah, exactly. You'd be like, here's $50. No questions asked. <laughs> sure. Thank you. Okay, you can find this lemonade stand located. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Where you guys, we have an announcement. We have merch. Merch? <coughs> yes. <laughs> I haven't had enough water today. Mm. We do have merch. If you go to feverobson.com slash merch, you will find a t-shirt and a jumper, as the Brits like to say. It could be a nice Christmas jumper with uh, Phoebe's face on. Oh, gosh. That would, that, if someone gifted that to me for Christmas, I'd be like, you don't like me. Uh-oh. <laughs> Buyer's merch. I'm just kidding, you guys. <laughs> this is, it's called comedy, guys. Right. So I took you on a journey. I see. Uh, is it a one-way or is, is there a return? <laughs> There's definitely some transfers. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's some connections. It's not direct mm. back. But if you go to FeebeRobson.com slash merch, the sizing is small to triple XL. So get yourself something nice and cozy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know what you guys can do? You guys can all get some for your entire family. And then we take pictures around your Christmas tree or your Hanukkah bush. Why didn't we do that? <laughs> Get the whole family remotely yes. taking a holiday Christmas card, all wearing the merch. Yeah. Damn. I'm a small business. Mm. So support me. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Um, and speaking of small businesses, as you guys know, we do not take any nasty ass, trifling ass money from freaking Cheerios. The freaking Hasbro, like, gaming company. You are just calling out everyone on this podcast, aren't you? <laughs> the freaking, the Kellogg cereal company. <laughs> freaking Old Spice. Oh, I do like Old Spice, though. <laughs> Squirrel Box, none of these guys. No. Okay, because we are independent. We create our own rules, okay? Yes. We live on the fringes of society. We can do what we want. We can say what we want. Yes. We are rebels with a cause. Mm-hmm. And I'm rebelling against the man <laughs> in my five-year-old Target robe. You have had that a long time. <laughs> it's starting to pill a little bit. Oh, no. I mean... <laughs> We can buy another one. <laughs> no, we got to just let this one like go into the wheels. Okay. So anyway, we are truly just going rogue, freaking making our own rules. Right. <laughs> you know, like get to the point. Yep. <laughs> and what had happened is one of my favorite companies, black owned, um, they hit me up and they're like, we like the podcast. We love what you and Bake Off are doing. We'd be down to be like a business and like you could advertise your stuff and we could support your podcast a little bit. And I was like, that sounds smashing. Bloody brilliant. And so Bolden USA, which is a fantastic skincare line. I use their cleanser every single day of my life. Well, except for the days that I don't shower. But any. <laughs> so close. <laughs> but Bolden. Honestly, so many skincare lines do not take into account people who have melanin in their skin. And I feel like Bolden makes your skin 
feel good, clean, healthy, and that you're actually repairing your skin the way that you're supposed to. Mm. They have the cleanser, the facial wash I use every day. They have vitamin C serum. They have overnight spot treatments. They have moisturizers. They have bloody sunscreens. Sounds lovely. They even have freaking like quick mask. It's five minutes. Perfect. So you know what you guys can do? You could go to their Instagram, BoldingUSA, or you go to their website, BoldingUSA.com, and you can make your purchases there. Use the code BF20. That's B as in boy, F as in farmer, two as in two, zero as in zero. (laughs) Thank you for spelling that one out. (laughs) But if you want to hit up their Instagram, it's bold in USA. That's B as in um Boy, this is going on long. B as in books. <laughs> <laughs> o as in ornaments. Mm. L as in Lithuania. Right. D as in demonstrative. Mm. E as in E. coli. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> in as in nature, you as in unicycle, S as in statuesque, and A as in abomination. Bold in USA, baby. If you want your skin to not look jacked up, do it. Great holiday presents for your family. Get into it. That's the tagline right there. Bold in USA, if you don't want your skin to look jacked up. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys believe that that wasn't a copy that was written yeah, that by was, them? <laughs> that was pure improv right there. Yeah. Well, anyway, okay, you guys, support Black-owned businesses year-round, okay? Not just for the mm-hmm. holidays. Um, thanks again to Raquel Willis. She was fantastic. Yep. Thank you guys. Um, and follow her online. She's brilliant, amazing, wonderful, so, so, so deliciously cute. Um, and also bake off, you guys. You gotta work, we gotta give Bake Off his his Instagram numbers have gotta go back up. I've really let it go. I haven't yeah. posted. I mean, I posted when the podcast came out on the Hassan episode. That was four months ago, babe. Well, it's been a very depressing four months. <laughs> but you could you could take pictures of your tattoos. So you're going to say something else then? Nobody wants to see your dick but me. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. Uh, what were you going to say? My tits. Because you said tats, but it sounded like tits. Yeah. You could post pictures of you drinking cups of tea. In the bath? Yeah. He likes to take a bath. I do. Credit time? Hey, you guys! Check it out. Host Phoebe Lynn Robinson. Producers Phoebe Lynn Robinson, British Bake Off. Editor British Bake Off. Theme song Gavin Turek. Interns Sasha and Malia Obama. Great job, you guys. The semester's almost over. We appreciate everything you guys have been doing. Working, t- working towards those extra credits. Yeah. Brock and Michelle will be so proud. And also, have you guys gotten Brock's book yet? He really needs the sales. 
Mm, apparently. <laughs> yeah, he's struggling, you guys. <laughs> he's not a New York Times bestseller, okay? Buy his book. 